I'm Sangram Vajray. And I'm Brian Brown, co-authors of Move, the four-question go-to-market framework. Helping you confidently take your organization's next move. So Jeff, why don't we just kick it off with you, maybe a little bit about you and I journey, like together as we have known each other for the last decade or more. How did we meet? And then um, how did I almost made you an Uber driver before you became a CEO? Yeah, so that's a, it's a long story. And so it'll probably take up most of the sessions, but, <laughs> but it's worth telling. Um, kind of the origin story of, of me and, and Sangram. I was at a, a Gartner, I think it was a Gartner event, right, Sangram? At, um, you know, like the Intercontinental where they gave us, you know, eggs and bacon for breakfast. And we <laughs> talked about Gartner trends and, and what, where they see the market. It was, it was, you know, a lot of like marketing. I think it was a lot of VPs of marketing. And I was a VP of marketing at a company called PGI at the time. And uh, PGI was a big audio web conferencing company. And then Sangram was, I think, a VP of marketing at Salesforce at the time after the Pardot acquisition. And we were, we were sitting near each other and we were just chatting. And, you know, I was like, wow, this guy's really happy. And, um, <laughs> And I was like, and I like happy people. And, and so I was like, I was like, oh, I should keep in touch with him. And so we went to lunch one day at, um, at uh, Brick Tops restaurant in um, the Terminus building. And, you know, we we're chatting and Sangram told me he was leaving Salesforce to go to a company called Terminus as kind of a CMO slash co-founder. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I, I really think, admire that you're leaving a big company that's probably paying you a lot of money to go to a startup. And I'm really, I'd like to do that with my next gig. I'd like to go to a startup at some point. And Sanger was like, well, I just passed on this job. That's really <laughs> interesting. I should introduce you to them and, you know, just go have a conversation and see where it takes you. So Sanger introduced me to a guy named Dave Kyle. Dave was the CEO of a company called QA Symphony, which was another kind of early stage startup here in Atlanta. They had just raised a series A. And so they were looking kind of to scale and build the team. And Dave, which is why it was appropriate, we started with Springsteen. So Dave is from Jersey and I'm from Jersey. And so when we met, we bonded over our mutual love of Springsteen. And in fact, I think, I think that's why he hired me. He just needed another Jersey guy <laughs> in, in the company. And so yeah. uh, I joined Dave shortly after, took a massive pay cut to go to a startup, got loaded up on equity, uh, which is what you do when you're at a startup. And that equity still hasn't done anything. So I'm still waiting for an event with, with QA Symphony someday. But hopefully, hopefully sometime soon, it, it'll be a good thing. But I had a great three-year run at QA Symphony where we went from Series A, Series B, Series C, built the business from 15 people to 100, you know, built the business from a million ARR to 20 million, which is really, really hard to do at a company that size. So it was just fantastic experience. And, and through it all, I think, I think Sangram and I just kind of were, were kind of like partners in crime as far as like we were both, you know, marketing leaders trying to make it work in startups. So just kind of constantly talking, sharing best practices. I think I was a, a client of Sangram's a few times. I think I churned a couple times, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of what you do when you're at a startup. You have budget and you spend money and you, your budget gets taken away and you lose money. Yeah, I have to cancel all your, your contracts with your friends. But yeah, we've, we've had a good relationship through the years. I had the unique honor when, when Sangram released his first book, Account-Based Marketing for Dummies. This is a funny story. So, I, so there's a woman named Lauren Patrick, who some of you might know from the Atlanta marketing community. Lauren 
Lauren and I have been friends forever. We worked at Auto Trader together. Lauren pings me. She said, hey, we have like five people that are going to roast Sangram. It's going to be great. We're going to roast him for his book launch. <laughs> and and so so I was like, I was like, oh, that that's fun. But then I, then I agreed to do it. And then I, after I hung up the phone, I was like, oh, my God, now I have to actually write a roast. And I take these things super seriously. And so I was like, all weekend, I'm watching Comedy Central roast of you know, Charlie Sheen and and, oh, Charlie Sheen. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, and Chad, uh, what's his name? Rob Lowe. I'm watching all these roasts. I was like, I'm trying to like get ideas for my roasts. So they were all totally inappropriate. But and so I, I like I like just agonized over this thing for like a weekend writing this roast of Sangram. And finally, I like I got to a place where like, OK, I think I think this is good. But the problem with a roast is like you never know until you actually go in front of people and see if they're going to laugh at your jokes or not. And so, so I had this roast and I was like, all right, I'm, I, I think I have it. I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. I think there's some good jokes here. I think I'll get some laughs. And so like we get to the event and the first person goes up there and I think it was Spet. And Spet, yeah. Spet just like gushes over Spet. He's like, Sangram's so great. I love Sangram. <laughs> he had no roasting, no roasting. Then the next person goes up, a, a nod I think went up and he's like, yeah. When I think about Sangram, I think about love. And, uh, like, and, and, and it was like, they were just, they, there were no roasts. <laughs> I was like, what's going on here? No one was roasting Sangram. And so then I was like, I was like, there are two options here. Do I do a plan B and just say something nice about Sangram? Or do I go do my roast? And I was like, I, I spent all weekend working on this roast. I'm going to fucking roast this guy. <laughs> and so I, I roasted him. And when you do a roast, actually, the, what you're supposed to do is you roast a bunch of other people as well. Like, so I started roasting Eric Sped and yeah. Lauren and I, I was, um, you know, so, so it was, it was a very fun, I didn't know how it would go over, but people laughed. So I think, I think it was, uh, it was, it was a well-received roast. You could still see it. It's actually, I posted it. If so, if you just Google roast of Sangram Vajra, you could actually read the script. Yeah, it was very well done. I'm also like, you know, it wasn't recorded. So that was our, the biggest pet peeve. So I'm glad Jeff is like, I'm going to just, Posted on LinkedIn. So thank you, Jeff. Like everybody in the world can read it now. Everybody's Googling right now. I, I can see Amber like literally going left and right. And Google said, so go for it. Google it. It's actually a pretty good roast. And it literally was both of us early stage companies trying to make ends meet, like leaving big cushy jobs. And we're talking about like, maybe we should start Uber on the side to just make some ends meet. So, you know, like <laughs> it, it, that was part of the roast. And it was, that, that was well, the line, the line was... I was like, you know, Sangram left a very high-paying job at Salesforce to join Terminus. Now, I'm not saying Sangram's not making any money at Terminus, but I called Uber to drive me here, and Sangram was my driver. (laughs) (laughs) That was was pretty good. I think it was. I could still laugh about it. Still laugh about it. So here, here we are. One of the big things is, is you know, I've continuously say is like, look, marketers, like we do have incredible front row seats at what the business does. And as you can see through that background, Jeff has worked at B2C companies, B2B companies. He has been able to transform. He's, I look at Jeff as more of a brand guy. Like, you know, that was the first time I met him. I was like, man, you're an awesome storyteller, brand guy, now doing demand gen stuff for marketing for B2B. That got to suck. But, you know, he just kind of did really well, which is, comes back to his book where he talked about, well, how not to suck at marketing. But then recently, literally this year, he became the CEO of Park Mobile. So Jeff, share a little bit about what Park Mobile is, some of the growth, because you've been there for four years. And then we're going to dive into the five big lessons he learned that 
every CMO, every marketer should know in order to become a CEO, because a lot of us right now, a lot of you here, some of you are CMOs right now, but some of you are trying to be a CMO and there's, there's a journey to that. But in order for us to even go further than that, I do believe CMOs will start becoming, it will be more common to CMOs or marketing leaders to be on boards, to be on advisories and to be on CEO positions. So Jeff is going to share five key areas that he realized that led him to be in that role intentional or not, those were the things that really helped them. So, so Jeff, uh, could you share a little bit about Park Mobile, how you landed up the CMO gig to begin with, and then we'll jump into the CEO side. Yeah. So just, you know, I have a lot, I see a lot of you on video right now by a show of hands, who has the Park Mobile app on their phone here? So few of you, I'll assume that the ones who don't have it, you just prefer to play with coins at the meter and you're a little (laughs) old school, but that's okay. Yeah, it's not available everywhere. Actually, we are available in most cities across the country. We're, we are the number one app for um, paying for parking on your mobile device. Hmm. So we started the company in 2008. This is before I joined. The initial version of Park Mobile, it was actually, it was a call-in number. So you could either pay at a meter or you can call like an IVR line uh, that you set up and pay for parking, which was uh, not very convenient. As you can imagine, we had very low adoption. But then as, as mobile apps started coming into the market, uh, we converted the, the phone-based IVR into a, what was a user interface on, in, via app. And that really took off. And then cities realized, hey, we, we need to get rid of some of this hardware that we have on the street. And we, we want people to pay via mobile device. And mm-hmm. for, for people, people said, I don't want to even touch this hardware on the street. I don't want to carry coins around. I'd much rather pay on my phone. And so the business has really just grown like crazy organically over the years. And it's, it, we're in a marketplace that is not hugely competitive, which is kind of interesting. So that we have about, we have really like two com- main competitors that we kind of go into every RFP against. We win usually 90% of the time, which is why we have by far the biggest network in the US. Uh, number one parking app. We have, uh, we're coming up on, on 30 million users. So it's a it's an app that has a really you know broad adoption across the United States, which is really exciting, and we've expanded over the years. So uh, those who've used the app, you've probably paid when you park on the street in a city, but now we also offer parking reservations. So before you go to a sporting event at State Farm Arena, you could prepay for your parking in a lot, and so you, instead of having to drive around aimlessly looking for where to park before an event, you could just go right to the lot that you book. Interesting fact about um, our parking reservations business, the number one event that we do reservations for at arenas around the country, can anyone guess what it is? What is the number one event we do reservations for at, at arenas? You can throw it into the chat if you want. Yeah. See what. See if we have some smart guesses here. The sporting events? It Concerts? Could be, it could be any event that is at an arena. NFL, we do, actually, we do um, for the Falcons at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. That's our, they're, they're really big. Conferences, opera. You know what's big is that volleyball tournaments are very big at convention centers. We do a ton on these volleyball or cheerleading tournaments that are very big gun shows. Um, I don't, I, you know, actually, we, we do the, um, the Kentucky Expo, in, uh, and, and there's a lot of gun shows there. You know, soccer. Yeah, we do a lot for Atlanta United. But, so, but this is the number one event that we do. Bruce concerts is always good. Yeah, we do well for Bruce concerts. Concerts that actually uh, attract an older audience. We do pretty well. And like, so Elton John, we were crushing it. Bruce, we crush it. 
the Eagles when they were on tour. We were doing a ton for them. I think I think the older audiences, they when they're driving into the city, they like to know where they're going to park. But the number one <laughs> is um, Disney on Ice. Disney on Ice yeah. is our number one event. We love Disney on Ice because it's like mom and dad with six kids in the minivan trekking from the burbs into town. They they want to know where they're going to park. Yeah. They want that reservation. They don't care what it costs because they're not going to make their kid walk a mile on their shoulders, you know, to get to the event. So Disney on Ice is a huge, huge event. Disney on Ice, Monster Truck, and those kind of events that that are more family centric, where it's mom and dad taking you know kids and friends. Those always do pretty well for us. So, so that's a little bit about Park Mobile. Um, so, so Jeff, on on yeah. that note, I remember you guys. One of the things, just from a marketing perspective, too, is like when COVID happened, you guys actually did something really interesting to that seems like led to the even more amazing growth uh, of your business. Well, when COVID hit, we our business got demolished. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because there was yeah nobody's doing. So what what would, there was something you guys were working on and doing that just started to like you know through nonprofits or support like you guys your number of users. I remember you putting a post out there saying that, hey, we were actually, the number of people now signing up has gone up. Yeah, well, it was really interesting during COVID, you know, because I've never, I mean, most of us have never had an event like COVID in our lives before. COVID had massive impact on our business as offices closed, as people stopped driving into city centers, as, as everything shut down, as event venues shut down. Our revenue at the bottom, we were down 95%. I mean, that that's horrible. and and. Fortunately, we were at the time we were owned by, you know, uh, BMW and Daimler. So they weren't going to let us go out of business. But it's super scary when you lose that kind of revenue. Uh, and, yeah. and I think probably a lot of you guys work in SaaS companies. SaaS businesses did okay during COVID. Some grew a lot. But businesses that were like ours, where you're really relying on people driving cars and parking, you know, we got, we just got absolutely hammered. So we said, okay, during, so when COVID started, we said, okay, it was really sad because we had all these people like on Twitter be like, well, I guess I could delete the park mobile app from my phone now. You know I mean? We every day we would see these mean tweets about, you know, the best thing about COVID is that I don't have to pay to park anymore. You see all these things and you're like, Oh man, this is like, this is so terrible. But we said, okay, what, what can we do during COVID knowing that people aren't going to park to remain relevant? And, you know, we work with cities all over the country and we said, well, maybe we could help our cities and maybe we could help raise money for charities in the cities that are helping with, with COVID, that are feeding the homeless. And so we basically turned the app into a fundraising tool. So for several months, we were promoting, hey, don't delete the app because you can use it to donate money to great causes in your city. So we, we really leaned in on fundraising and we matched a portion of everything we raised. So we raised you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars through the app for some, a lot of charities that operate in the cities that we do business with. And our clients really appreciated it. I think the users, the users were very complimentary of that. But what it did for us is it kept us at least sort of top of mind for people at a time when they could totally forget that there was even a Park Mobile app. And I think that helped kind of maintain us a bit during a really tough time when no one was downloading the app, no one was using the app. So that was like, one big thing we did. The other thing we did is we really doubled down on uh, efforts to acquire new cities, new locations with Park Mobile. So if you think about with every challenge to a business, it creates opportunities. And so we said, okay, we don't have any users. No one's parking. We're not making any money, but 
our clients are realizing now that they have all this hardware that's out on the street, right? And nobody wants to touch hardware. And they, they're like, cities weren't putting people out to even enforce parking during COVID. Um, the last thing they want to do is put people on the street collecting coins and, and things right. like that. And so we got very aggressive with our sales going to cities and really promoting to cities, hey, you need to move to contactless. So cities that don't currently have an app, hey, you need to go contactless. And then one of our competitors actually went out of business during COVID. And so we went to all of those cities and we said, hey, we will get your city live on Park Mobile in five business days. Like we know you need a mobile app in the city now. Your mobile app that your city selected went out of business. We will get you live in five business days. And so the doubling down on sales during that time really led to what is now just an explosion of, of revenue growth for our business. Because we built relationships with these cities. We got them live very quickly. And now that parking is coming back, now our business is like hockey stick. And yeah. so it was a good lesson that, you know, you know when, when life gives you lemons, right? Uh, make lemonade. You have to figure out within your business, all right, how do we turn all this negative bullshit into a positive so we can keep growing? I mean, we knew COVID wasn't going to last forever. Yeah. We knew that we would be back at some point. And um, we knew that if, and, and what our, here's what our competitors did, actually. Our competitors furloughed all their employees, laid off a ton of people. That's what our competitors did during COVID. What we did was we reduced expenses, we reduced contractors, so external employees, but we kept all of our employees. We kept 100% of our employees during COVID. And we're, we're still very proud of that. I mean, our executives took a pay cut. We didn't make employees take a pay cut, but executives took a pay cut. But we, we were able to retain our people. And you know, I think that was a big deal for us, trying to keep, keep our team in place. Because I'll, I'll tell you, we knew that eventually the business would come back. And if we laid off people or furloughed people, we would be in a tough spot as, as everything started to come back. So we wanted to, we had great infrastructure in place. We wanted to keep that, that there. And so we, we reduced expenses. We weathered the storm and then the business started to come back. And, and now the business we're, we're up, you know, we don't even look at 2020 as a baseline. We look at 2019 and we're up about 40% now from 2019, which was our baseline from a revenue perspective. Wow. So that's, that's great and and really exciting and you know the people that that stuck it out it's uh, very rewarding now to see that you know we're we're back into kind of a, a hyper um, growth phase. I saw someone ask the question: Do we take PPP money? We probably would have taken PPP money, but because we were owned by German companies, um, we weren't eligible for that. So unfortunately, our our owners had to kind of um, actually we we actually ended up the year. Uh, you know, we're, we were in an investment mode before COVID. We had made some, some uh, specific decisions to sacrifice profitability for, for, you know, investments in the business to scale and grow. So we weren't profitable before COVID, but we actually ended up hitting, hitting our, our EBITDA number in 2020. Um, it was a loss, but we ended up hitting the number that we had planned to hit because we did so much work to reduce expenses. We just didn't right. hit our top line growth number, but you kind of offset that with with the reduction in expenses. So we, man, we dug deep. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you guys did the same thing. I mean, I had to call every friend that we did <laughs> with and say, hey, like, can we pause the contract? Can we delay payment? Can we, you know, I had to call in every every favor I could possibly could. And I'll tell you, you know, a lot of the vendors we worked with were so good to us during the time. And that was important because once as we're coming back out of COVID now and we're starting to ramp up investment, those are the vendors I'm going back to and saying, all right, let's, 
let's yeah. make good on what we did before COVID. Let's get going again. Let's let's sign those deals again. So it's uh it's an important point about relationship building in this thing. It's like you got to be there. And we were the same way with a lot of our clients. We had to, you know, we we had to delay payments with some of our clients. We had to make sure that we were being fair to them. We had to let some some out of contracts. But that's what you do during tough times. And and the hope is that it's going to solidify the relationship for the long term. Yep. And Jeff, you know, obviously you can see from the comments, like people really appreciate and sharing the story of like keeping all the employees and figuring out how do we survive through that. I think that's, that's just a great, I had no idea. And I think that's a, that's really amazing. And kudos to relate to, to the leadership that you and the team showed. Um, Jay had like, I, you know, I had, you and I've talked about a few things that we want to talk about, but I think let's get into the questions that Jay just dropped in there. Like what were the compelling issues that drove a CMO to CEO decision from your board? Um, how did that come about? Was it your skills? Was it the company stage? Was it uh, like, hey, the CEO is moving on. They're looking for external. And, and to hire, you know, typically you would just, a lot of times you just hire somebody else from outside to run and grow the company. Right. Very few times you'd see somebody from inside actually getting into that position and even less for a CML. So what was the board thinking? I think that's a great question by Jack. I mean, I probably would go back to, you know, I started at Park Mobile as the CMO. And my philosophy on, on being a CMO is that, you know, you have to have, to be successful, you have to have a really tight relationship with your CEO. Like it's super important. Or, or whoever you report to in the organization, that's your key person. So some, sometimes CMO will report to CRO or, but, but you have to have that, that really, really tight relationship. So one of my priorities was like, I need to make sure, like I am, there's no daylight between me and the CEO. Like, like we are totally aligned. I'm, I'm listening to him. I'm delivering on what the strategic plan is. And he understands what marketing is doing at a very granular level. And he understands the data we're, we're looking at. He understands what's working, what's not. And that's, I found that to be a very effective strategy um, in my career, both with the CM, the CEO and the CFO. Mm -hmm. A lot of organizations and, and how I've seen marketing kind of get blown up in organizations is that the marketing function kind of goes in a, a sort of a black box mode. And they're like, well, just, just give us a budget and trust us. Yeah. And, and we're going to make it work and we'll make it happen. And, and I think that that's generally a mistake. You know, you're both your CFO and your CEO are very quantitatively driven executives, right? And what I found really works to marketing's advantage this day is that marketing is highly quantitative. Mm. And so uh, your job as a CMO oftentimes is to bring good data to the CFO and the CEO and, and show them the impact that marketing is having on the organization. That's kind of like really at a, at a leadership level as a marketing leader, that's what I focused on. And the more I did that, the more the CEO started to lean on me as a key partner in the business, not just like, you know, his comms guy or the press release department or the, the presentation department, but, but like his business partner and, and kind of like, like sorting through issues, talking about the strategy, figuring out, all right, what do we need to do to grow? What do we, where can we cut back to save money in places? And as the relationship got tighter it created new opportunities for me. So our head of product left in, uh, at the end of 2019. And so then the CEO said, hey, Jeff, I'd like you to take over product. So you'll run marketing and product. So that expanded my portfolio within the organization significantly by having the product team now reporting into me. 
And then as our, we had a CTO leave the company in, um, at the end of 2020, and the CEO said, um, I'd like you to take over technology. And I said, no fucking way, I'm taking over technology. <laughs> and, and he said, well, I need you to, to step in in the short term. It just be a leader for the technology team during this transition and we'll bring in a CTO. And so I, I kind of, now I own marketing, I own products, I own technology. Uh, and and so, how long, Jeff, how, how, what was the period of just this part? Like, when did you start? How long it took for you to build that solid relationship with the CEO for him to have you run product and technology and, and just break it down for us? I mean, it was probably, I think the relationship really started forming at the end of the first year, you know, when we were working together, because it just clicked with us. We just, we just really became great, great partners. And, you know, I, I think for me also as a CEO now, that's, that's what I look for in my leadership team. I want, I want executives, not that'll just be yes men. I want, I want partners. I mean, I think, I think as a management, as a high-performing management team, you need to have everyone kind of, you know, rowing, rowing the boat in sync and everyone's got to be kind of working together and collaborating effectively. And so that, that's a key priority for me is making sure our, our team is high functioning and working well together. And there's not a lot, like I hate, the thing I hate is like having, you know, one executive come to me to complain about another executive. Like that's, that's when you know you're in a bad spot. That hasn't happened here. I, I mean, I think we're, I think we respect each other. We work together. We can resolve the issues either with the person you have an issue with or as a, as a whole team, as, as opposed to, you know, coming to dad to have dad resolve their dispute between the siblings. And, the, and I think that's, that's a really good thing. But, but really, it took about, I think, a year to, to get, mm-hmm. you know, build that trust with the CEO, show him that I kind of knew what I was doing, that I was making an impact on the business. And then once you have that trust, it's just continuing to, to collaborate and work together. I mean, I, I think with CEO relationships, especially from a marketing perspective, you got to work to stay in front of the CEO. CEO sometimes, you know, like, will just kind of lose track of marketing, not be that interested. I mean, I was like, I, w- I always was like, like my office, I think is, you know, two offices away from the CEO. So vicinity made it easy uh, in a pre-COVID world. But we just, we just kind of jived together. It was, it was great. And when you have that relationship with the CEO, it's going to open up opportunities for you because, you know, CEOs, more than anything else, you know, they value trust. They, they want to trust the people. And, and they know, like, like John Ziegler, our, our previous CEO, you know, it, it was much higher risk for him to go outside the organization to bring in a new product leader than it was to, to just have me run product and marketing at the same time. Did you ever express interest in running more than marketing that led you to, for him to get you to do more than what you had? You know, no, <laughs> I generally don't, I don't want to sign up for more work usually. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the reason I asked that is because, you know, that they, as you know, like market, the CML role is like typically a punching bag, right? right. Like the sales are, sales is not going up. Well, marketing's fault. Like customers are churning, marketing's fault. People are not adopting the product, marketing's fault. So it's typically a catch-all for the most part. So the, for for that means you must really be and I, and we have said this this in the speak community like marketing leaders this is it's about learning the business of marketing now we're not talking about the SEO hacks and pay per click hacks or any of that stuff uh, landing page optimization like, we're not talking about all that stuff in in the community we're talking about how what do you do to learn and be to to learn the business of marketing so you can have that. Well, vocabulary to talk to not just the CEO, but the rest of the organization. So I'm curious, like how, like what was happening in, in that time 
especially from a, and, and then get to the board part of it. Like, you know, because now you build a great relationship with the CEO. How was your relationship with the board? Like, where did the board come in? Was it the CEO's decision to say, hey, I'm done. I need somebody else and I'm recommending Jeff. Was it board's decision to say, hey, Jeff is, you know, like how, how did the board, how did you interact with the board? Well, it was, I mean, it's not your usual situation because it, so we were acquired in June. And so uh, BMW and Daimler owned us and they sold us to a company called Easy Park that's based in Stockholm. And so after that event, John, our, our previous CEO, decided he wanted to go pursue a new opportunity. And he had been here, I think, seven years. He had ended up selling the company three times during that point. He was, I think, I think he had, he got to the point where he had done what he wanted to do with, with Park Mobile and, and was looking for his next challenge. And, and he, um, he likes to describe himself as a turnaround CEO. So when he came into Park Mobile, the business was, was not in a good state and he was able to really turn it around and, and build it and get it to where it was the point where it was getting a very high valuation in a sale. So he, he, I think he accomplished his goals here and was ready for the next thing. And so then we had a new owner, new board, and they were left with, okay, we're losing our CEO. What, what do we do now? Do we go outside and put a new install, install a new CEO at Park Mobile US? And I think John's point to the our new owners was like, well, listen, uh, Jeff has been my closest strategic partner in the business for the last four years. Jeff runs seventy five percent of the company now because he runs marketing, product, and tech. Mm-hmm. It probably just makes a lot of sense to make him CEO. <laughs> so that was the. Uh, I mean, it was it was kind of that simple. I mean, and I think the point he was making was Jeff is essentially the senior executive who runs most of the business, knows this business so well. He's he's the guy that you know will continue to to help us do what we're doing. And and at the company at this point is at a stage where we have to keep executing our plan. And you know when when a board looks at a business, it's either okay. Uh, the CEO is leaving for one reason or another. We need to bring in a new CEO because there's something that has to get fixed. You know, and CEOs that come into an organization, they want to do their thing, right? They want to build their team, deliver on their strategy. And you know, where we are today is that our business is doing very well. And I think the the board, our new board, our new owners said, hey, we we don't want to interrupt something that seems to be working and growing and we want to maintain the current trajectory. And we think that, you know, Jeff clearly is someone who has the experience at the company, has shown he can deliver and make an impact. So it, it became, it became probably sort of an easy decision to move yeah. into, the, into the role. I don't think I would have gotten the job if I had kind of stayed in my lane as, a, as, a, as the CMO. I think that's kind of a good lesson that, you know, marketing leaders, if you want to get to the CEO role, you kind of have to look at ways to expand your portfolio over time. Like you can't just be the CMO and if you want to be the CEO, I, I think. And, and different organizations operate differently. But because I had the broader experience across the business, I think that's really what teed me up for, for that position. And, yeah. and that, that's kind of just some advice. I, you know, so it may be worth, you know, if you're the CMO and you've been at a company for a couple of years and you want to get to that next step, it's important for you to have conversations with your CEO about how do I, it's not saying, hey, I want to take your job someday, but it's saying, how do I expand my portfolio in the organization? So maybe they'll fold the sales team into you, or maybe there, maybe you can take on, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people in the that have this overall customer experience or role that is a C-level role, the, the chief customer experience officer, that might be something that you can evolve into. 
But I think if you have to kind of figure out ways over time to increase your portfolio within the organization. And if you do that and you're good at it, listen, listen, there's no shortage of work in a company. And if you're good at what you do and, you, and you've proven that you can do new things, they're going to find all kinds of shit to throw at you to buy, yeah. put on your, your overflowing plate. And so, so it's, you know, the, the biggest thing is just doing a good job, delivering results and, and everything kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, I, I don't want to miss on the final point for everybody who's not a CMO right now is, and, and Amber, I would love for you to ask your question um, after this, is like the bigger part of like we keep talking about the whole idea of business of marketing. So if you are running ABM and if you want to just run ABM and that's all you want to do, you don't want to have demand gen part of it. You don't want to touch product marketing. You don't want to touch brand. If that's where you are, I think chance of you becoming CMO is very low. Like you could be great at what you do, but you'll have to like, and, and none of this would happen unless you're great at what you do. Like that's really, really where it starts. So I'm, I'm pretty sure because Jeff ran marketing and, and he was able to delegate and he was able to hire great people underneath him, he could open up his, his bandwidth to do more. And, and, and I think his leadership could see that. What's also something that I think we have said in the community Nobody promotes somebody who's super busy and runs with their head cut off throughout the building. Like nobody promotes that person. Nobody wants to even talk to that person. Nobody wants to even have lunch with that person. So in order to build great relationship, trust and moving, like it just, so you have to figure out everybody's going to have a ton of work, no matter what your job role is, might be ABM, might be product marketing, might be CMO, but it's still somehow you have to figure out how do I delegate it out? How do I own what I own? How do I report on it? Well, and if you want to continue to grow, starting to not necessarily land grab, but open up to those conversations, open up to support them and eventually open up to own them when as and when opportunity presents. So I don't want anybody to miss on it. Like it's clear Jeff killed as a business leader for marketing in order for him to own product tech and then all the way to CEO. So with that, Amber, jump in with your question. Hi, um, I, I have a long-winded question. I'm probably going to try and summarize it. We touched on a lot of the points, but I think what I'm trying to get at is really how any advice really just kind of open-ended any advice on kind of the determination of the staying versus going um, in order to elevate and and you kind of touched on like the expanding of your portfolio which completely makes sense but like the question of how long are you taking on that much of the business for how many years before the sort of the sign of am i going to go anywhere here and how do you kind of I guess just tackle that from like a personal standpoint. Yeah, that's a. There's no right answer to that, right? That that's the hardest thing. And <laughs> my my path up from you know marketing manager to to CMO was was a really weird one. I, I think for for a lot of people. But I mean, I'll I'll, t I'll tell you my background and my story a little bit about you know how I became you know how I got to the CMO because it was more of a move out to move up story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important one to, to kind of like, I think back to what Sangram said before, like no one on the, no one has to be a CMO, you know, like, like you may love ABM or you may love demand gen, or you may love branding or comms and, or something. And you can get paid a ton of money to be a, like really good at that. Like you like, it's crazy what social media managers make, right? You know, so, so, I don't think anyone on this call should think like, oh, I'm not going to be successful or make a lot of money in my career unless I'm a CMO. That's totally not true. You could be a specialist. You could be an individual contributor and be compensated really well and have a lot of satisfaction and a great career doing that. 
but it's all about what you want to do. And, and I think that's probably, if you really deconstruct it, it's like, I, I knew early on, you know, in my career, I was like, what, what really gets me like excited about work is when I could see the impact of what I'm doing on, on the business that I'm operating. I mean, that's what like really gets me, gets me excited. And so, okay, so I'm in marketing, I'm a marketing expert, but how can I make the biggest impact, not just on the marketing team, but across the organization. And to me that said, well, obviously if I, the higher up I go in an organization, the bigger impact I could make. So that led me to say, you know, I, I really have my sights set on, I want to be a CMO of a company. And so I was, I was at uh, Auto Trader and I was there. I joined Auto Trader in 2007 as a, a, mar, a senior marketing manager at Auto Trader. And 2008 went by, 2009, I was still a senior marketing manager, 2010, 2011, 2012, I was still a senior marketing manager. So there were five years without a promotion. And I was, I was like, what's going on here? I was doing great work. I mean, Auto Trader is owned by Cox. You know, they were putting me in every leadership program, every mentor program. They're sending me to conferences. They were they were totally invested in me as like a, a, a one of their, not not like the number one employee, but like like I was tagged as like, that's a guy we want to retain. We got to keep throwing money at him. I mean, for a senior marketing manager, I was making a ridiculous salary, actually. And I was like, I was like, but I, I wanted to be a, a director. I wanted to see kind of where's my path up. And I, I just, I couldn't see it at that company. And it was really frustrating. And it, it's, it was, um, I decided, I was like, I, I decided at that point, I was like, you know, my only choice at this business, like I'll never break through. Like there are too many layers. There were too many people ahead of me. And, and I was like, this, this is a point where I have to move out to move up. Now, it's really hard to go get CMO jobs if your title is senior marketing manager. <laughs> and, and so, and so it's, it was kind of, it's another part of the, the, the story of what you have to do to become a CMO you know, I was like, all right, I need to go get a job. So I, I reached out to every recruiter I knew. I was like, hey, can you find me like VP of marketing jobs? Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm making a big impact. Um, I have a big budget. I have a big team. I think I'm ready. I, I should be a VP of marketing. It's just a, a title misalignment thing. And they're like, well, Jeff, you know, we can't put you up for a VP of marketing job if you're a senior manager. Like, there's no way. I was like, okay, like, all right, this is what I'm going to do find me a really good manager job or director job where there's a, so it's a <laughs> lateral, but there's a path where I could move up. That's maybe you'll look at that. They're like, okay, how much do you make Jeff? And I told them what I make. They're like, I can't get you a job at that salary. It's way too high for a marketing manager. And you're in this like catch 22 where you're like, all right, I can't get the VP job because I don't have the VP title. I can't get a manager job because I make too much money. And you're like, that, that's, I was like, I'm totally screwed. I was like, I am totally screwed in my career. And, but I realized an important lesson. And I think I talk about this in my book. I was letting everybody else define who I was as an employee. I was, you know, whatever my title was on my resume, that's how I was being defined. I wasn't defining myself, right? And if you don't define yourself, someone else is going to define you. And it's going to be based on like what your title is. And that was an important lesson. So I said, okay, I need to redefine myself. I need to build my brand. I mean, shit, I'm a marketer. I should be able to build my own brand, <laughs> right? And so I said, okay, first step, let me figure out what a company's want in a CMO. And so I spent like an afternoon one day just on Indeed and LinkedIn looking at job descriptions for CMOs, right? And I was just looking at it. And, and you get to a point where you're like, I see the, the common thread here. It's you know, it, it's, it, I think I boiled it down to like five things. It was like, 
you know, understanding modern marketing, data analytics, proven track record of results, building the brand, able to communicate to the organization effectively. I mean, there are five or six key things that everybody looks at for a CMO and says, you have to have these things. And I looked at all those things and I said, shit, I've done all of those things. And I, I have great stories about all of those things that I have done. And, and I said, why, you know, I need to figure out how I can tell people about those stories. And so I started writing a blog and I wrote one blog post a week for a year. So I wrote 52 blog posts about different things I've done and worked on and to show kind of cases, case studies of like, hey, here's stuff I've done around building a team. Here's stuff I've done around building a brand. Here's ways I've used innovative new marketing tactics to drive results. And, and as I started to do that, then people said, oh, Jeff, you know, and I, I've never called myself a thought leader because I think that's presumptuous, but like, Jeff's a thought leader. We need to get Jeff to speak at our conference. So then I started speaking at conferences and on panels, you know, and here I was a, a marketing manager still, and I'm speaking at these events and I'm, you know, people are like, wow, that guy really knows what he's talking about. And then, you know, like um, advertising age called me one day and they said, hey, we've been reading some of your blogs and seeing your panel discussions. Can you start writing a monthly article for us at AdAge? So now I'm writing an article for AdAge, a national, national magazine. I'm, writing, I'm speaking at conferences I'm, and, and I'm writing a blog. And all of a sudden, like, it was like ridiculous. Like people are calling me out of the blue, be like, hey, I have this VP job. I have this VP job. I have this. Tell me what company you want to work at. They all want to hire you, Jeff. They all want to hire senior marketing manager from auto traders. <laughs> so, it's like, but well, it, and, and Jeff, like, how long did it take uh, from you at that position where you said, you know, I'm going to do this? And like, was it after you wrote for a year consistently that things started to open up for you? Was it in between? Was it a couple of years? No, no, it was actually much faster. It was really, I think, I think after the first six months of just committing to building my brand, I really the phone started ringing. And, and it was yeah. like in a big, I mean, I, it was like before I went to PGI, I was negotiating PGI and the offer from two other companies, all for VP marketing jobs. Right. Yeah. And, and it was like, it was, it was, it was ridiculous. What was yeah. happening? And you know, well, what's interesting as you're talking through this, I'm, I'm like, it made few notes around this is like this, what you're talking really is about committing to something. Right. And we all have commitment issues, right? Like, let's just be honest about it. We all have commitment issues. So we all need to just learn to commit to something to do regularly. And we can have all the excuses. We're also champions of excuses. So we all can make excuses. Well, I got too much to do. You know, this is not really, I don't see that many likes. Uh, so maybe it's not worthy. What if it doesn't look good? What if it doesn't sound good? Like we have all these like naysayer inside of our brain. Nobody's really saying that to us, by the way, but we have all these people in our brains talking to us. And so what you're really saying to everyone here is that you need, and it's not actually being a personal brand. It's like, just make sure you put yourself out there enough so that when your time, when it's time for you to look for a job, you're not a nobody that people, because nobody hires a nobody to become the VP of marketing or CM or CEL. Like that just doesn't happen unless somebody refers them and work very closely with them and, and somehow that works. But if, if, if it's more than that, then you need to figure out a way to do something very consistently, very regularly, and just do it well and, and let, let that work for a good period of time before you start evaluating if it's good or not. And the other part, I think you, you drop, you know, you mentioned in here, and I hope people take, uh, take note of that, was the personal brand is also not just what you build on LinkedIn or 
uh, online and stuff. One of the other things that I think you do very well, Jeff, is I get an email from you every once in a while saying, hey, I have, a, I have this person. I want to get this person a job. Like you have a, you're constantly reaching out to for either when you're hiring or when you have somebody that you want to get hired, you're putting things out there in the world. So you're kind of top of mind every so often with a set of people and set of influencers that you know you want to be in touch with. So a lot of times people think personal brand is me going on LinkedIn and posting something. Like that's not what we are talking about. It's, it's being consistent with it. And you need to do that in many cases to be up in your company. Could be something that you need to do. Like I remember I doing this in Pardot where I would send a weekly note to everybody on, my, uh, on the executive team about what's happening in marketing. Uh, nobody asked me to do it. But I just did it because I wanted to make sure that I feel accountable and they know that I feel accountable and then I could get to do more. So you could start. And that's how I think about brand internally that led them to say, you can do more. Like, why don't you run B2B cloud and B2C cloud marketing? Like it just opened up. So I think there's a lot of thing about external, but also internal brand building that 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 we all need to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really think you're right. And what a lot of people say to me when I tell about the personal branding story. Just to say, but Jeff, I'm a horrible writer, so I can't write a blog. I'd be embarrassed to write a blog. Yeah, they should go check out my post, and they would be <laughs> they'll feel better about themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah, but then they say, and, and I, I'm scared of public speaking, so I can't go speak. So it sounds like Jeff, you've done, you know, writing and public speaking to build your personal brand, but I, I can't do that. And and I said, well, what are you comfortable doing? And, and a lot of them say, well, I do like meeting people one-on-one and talking about marketing. I was like, well, there, that's your networking strategy. So once a week or twice a week, you get reach out to people, get a coffee, you know, get to know them, build your network. Because, you know, you and I are a testament to this thing. It's like, you know, you, you got me the job or you, you introduced me to QA Symphony, right? So that got me the, the CMO gig there. My friend, um, Lee Siegel introduced me to Park Mobile. That got me the CMO job here. Right. So, you know, I've, I've introduced people to other companies where they've become the CMO or the VP of marketing. And, you know, so your, your professional network and, and, you know, you guys are all in peak community, so you, you know this, but it's like, like having a strong professional network is one of the most valuable things you could build in your career, having a strong professional network, because no matter what happens in your current job, that network will be there for you and pays long, long-term dividends. It's like, if I ever need to hire somebody, one of the first things I do is I reach out to my network and say, hey, I have this role open. If you know any rock stars, send them my way. And I always get good candidates. I always get good candidates. And in fact, I always, I always brag about this at Park Mobile. Like I built my whole marketing team here through my network. I didn't pay one recruiter fee. And you think about you know, the savings of that when you're building a large team, I mean, that would have been, you know, a million dollars in recruiting fees, yep. uh, you know, it, that I saved the company because of my network. And I get, you know, what I believe to be higher quality talent that are even more motivated to work hard and here because, you know, whenever you get referred to a job through your network, you're, I feel like it's, it's not like a recruiter placed you there. It's like, hey, I want to perform because my friend put his name on the line to get me this, to help me get this job. So it, it I, I found that the internal, the, the, the referrals just, just are, are always the it best hires. Totally big. I know we're running uh, up on time and we try to keep them all uh, to, to the hour. So folks, few, few action items from here. We didn't really get Jeff into like the five things 
but I think you covered in, in many of those things. So I will make sure that we post that in the recap in the community. The second is you all are seeing some people right now that are spending time, like right now, just take a note for the names that are in this session. And if you're in Peak community, uh, some of you are like guests uh, of Peak, like just find one person to do one-on-one with. Like just take Jeff's advice and like, you know, just find one person in this group and talk about this topic. You don't have to think about what else. Like you just attended something that is so private, so like so informative and you were invited to this and you got to now talk about that topic. Like, hey, here's how I, what I took away from it. So you don't need to do anything. You just literally ping one of the folks that you want to in this group and just do one-on-one with them uh, within the next week. And I think you will probably appreciate the, the deeper drive of, what did you learn? What did the other person learned and what you really collectively do it. The other thing that I would say is like, go look for uh, Sangram Vajray Roast. I think that would at least make you all laugh. Uh, I want to go back and, Amber, you already found it? Uh, all right. Well, I need to go and read it again to my kids uh, because they were too young at that time. I think they will get some of the jokes now over the other part. And three, like, you know, uh, just follow Jeff on LinkedIn. He does really good about his content. He's really authentic. You can really see how Jeff has truly built an authentic relationship across the network. He's, he's someone that I tremendously admire as a friend and as a leader. And, oh, yeah, Buy go the book. get the book. <laughs> yeah, How Not to Suck at Marketing, I think, written from as, as a CMO and now a CEO this year is pretty good. So what's your next move? Here's one. Go to themovebook.com to check out the assessment, the templates, the frameworks, and a whole list of resources to help you figure out your next move. The link is in the show notes. Check it out.